Matthew chapter 5, and I want to go back to our series which we began last time on the Beatitudes. I, I really was a little ambivalent in taking the time to share those things with you because we need as much time as possible to deal with the Beatitudes, but uh, if we don't finish this one today, we'll finish it uh, next week. By the way, this is the week of our board meeting, and at the end of the week we have a special series called the Staley Lectures. A very good friend of mine and a new member of our board, Sam Erickson, is going to be with us. Sam uh, is a graduate of Harvard with a doctorate in law, and he is the head of the Christian Legal Society and the Center for Law and Religious Freedom in Washington. He will be here to speak on the matters relating uh, the church and state and really will open your horizons as to those issues as you look at them and face them in our society today. And he'll be giving that series, what, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday of this week. Let's look then to Matthew chapter 5, and we have begun a study, as Russ mentioned, of the Beatitudes. I don't want to go back over the introduction. I'll assume that you remember a little of it from last time, and uh, we'll just move into that second Beatitude. In verse 4 we read, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Really, we could paraphrase that and say, Happy are the sad. Last time we looked at the first Beatitude, Happy are the poor in spirit. And we saw that the Lord identifies true blessedness, true happiness, and not a superficial one, but a genuine deep happiness, a deep blessedness, and we define that as a sense of satisfaction. True satisfaction in life comes from poverty of spirit, a certain sense of bankruptcy, that is knowing that I have no good thing in myself, that I have no spiritual resource, that I can count on nothing of my own doing or making or possession to make me right with God and bring real satisfaction in my life. And it's in my bankruptcy that I reach out for what only God can give me, and in that I find true happiness and a place in the kingdom of heaven. In the second beatitude, he takes us a step further in the progression of thought. The bankrupt, bankrupt person is also a person who mourns, who is sad. Anyone who recognizes personal bankruptcy in the spiritual dimension realizes that that's a sad plight. And so the sadness flows out of that bankruptcy. By way of introduction, let me just kind of work our way into this a little bit. As we think about the subject of mourning or of sadness, we ask the question, what does this mean? What is he really saying here? Happy are the sad. What kind of sadness is this? Is this some kind of morbid thing that invites us to go through life in a rather doleful kind of mood, uh, never enjoying things, never being happy, never having fun, never expressing ourselves in a positive way? Of course not. Let me just kind of talk about mourning, if I might, for a bit to give you some kind of understanding. First of all, um, in the Greek language, there are nine, at least nine different words to express grief. And this is only one of those words. The nine words indicate to us a great range of, of ways to look at grief or sorrow or sadness or mourning. And any of us who have lived as long as we have lived have experienced various kinds of sadness, various kinds of sorrow. Uh, we can all identify moments of great loneliness, uh, moments when we are hurting very deeply, times when we weep because of our own physical pain, times when we find tears in our own eyes because of what's happening to someone else that we love very much. There are all kinds and shades of grief and mourning. And man's history, of course, is really a, a history of sorrow. Uh, no, no matter who you are, no matter what your life circumstances might be, no matter how positive they might be on the outside, we all live through deep sorrow. 
In fact, everyone ultimately dies, and the anticipation of that, which is an increasing anticipation, the longer you live, the closer you get to it, is cause in itself for sorrow. And the longer you live, the more people around you will die, and you will live through grief in that way as well. You will also live through the grief of unfulfilled dreams. You will live through the grief of unattained ambitions. You will live through the sorrows of your own sins, etc., etc., etc. And man's life is a story of sorrow. It's a story of grief. It's a story of mourning. And that's one reason why we all anticipate heaven with such full joy, because there God shall wipe away what? All tears from our eyes. And there will be no more sadness. But for now and for here, sadness is a part of life. Now let's talk about this for a moment and let's talk about what kind of mourning the Lord Jesus may have in mind. And let me just divide it into two categories, if I might, to start. There is a kind of sorrow that is a proper sorrow, all right? And there are tears that are proper tears. There is a place for that. Weeping and mourning in life in, in many ways is a very positive thing. In fact, sorrow and mourning and crying, we could say, is a gift from God. It is a release for emotion. It releases pain. It, it permits a healing process to take place. It's very important for people to go through that when they're in deep pain. When pain is kept inside, it has the effect of poisoning the emotional system. And mourning and sorrowing releases that poison and brings about a healing it's a gift from God in that sense. It's very natural to mourn. It's very natural to weep. It is a very, very healthy thing. And as you look at the Word of God, for example, you can see this. Abraham wept when his wife died. And you'd almost say, I hope so. Anybody who didn't, you'd question the validity of their relationship. Abraham's weeping over the death of his wife was very normal. In Psalm 42... We hear the psalmist weeping, and he says, As the deer pants after the water brook, so pants my soul after thee, O God. My soul thirsteth for thee, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Then he says, My tears have been my food day and night. And here is a weeping out of loneliness. The psalmist is in a situation where he is depressed because of the encroaching power of his enemies. He doesn't see the hand of God intervening. And in the midst of that, he feels this tremendous sense of loneliness. He is pursued by his enemies. He is despised by people who ever have every reason to love him. And he seems to be abandoned by God. And he cries out in tears. And perhaps you can identify with that. I know I can in my own life. There have been in my life those times when I felt even abandoned by God. And most often that occurs when the people who, from your perspective, owe you the most betray that. And you have this overwhelming sense of aloneness and wonder how it could be that God should so abandon you like that. And those are the tears of loneliness that Abraham shed when he lost a wife, that David shed in the sense that he had all of those who should have cared for him turning their back upon him. There are tears also of discouragement. We find that in the case of Paul, as he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, 3, and 4, I thank God whom I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience that without ceasing I have remembered thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee 
being mindful of thy tears, that I may be filled with joy. Timothy was weeping because of discouragement. If you read 2 Timothy, it's very clear. He had come to a point in his life where he was somewhat ashamed of the gospel. He was ashamed to be identified with Paul. He was stumbling in his own spiritual life. He was weak. Uh, he was timid in his presentation of the message. He was battered around by his youthful lusts. He was argumentative in terms of dealing with people and probably had some guilt because of that, he was under persecution, which he didn't like. He was having trouble dealing with some high-powered uh, philosophical error that was uh, being pushed on his people. And in the midst of defeat and discouragement, he wept tears. And Paul says, I'm praying for you because I know about those tears. There's another kind of weeping in Jeremiah chapter 9. And this is the weeping of, um, of identification. This is the one who weeps because of what's going to happen to someone else. And Jeremiah is called by God to announce to Israel the coming judgment. His job is to tell them they're going to be judged. And in Jeremiah 9.1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He wanted to weep so badly that he could only have wished that his head were a fountain so that it could gush out. He was so filled up with emotion that he saw could be released in tears that he wished he could be a literal waterfall so that all that emotion could come out. And he wasn't weeping at all because of anything that was going to happen to him. He was weeping about what was going to happen to his people. Now, the sympathy of that kind of man is almost beyond our conception in our very cold and indifferent day. We don't understand that kind of sympathy, but that was the character of the man of God. And every time you see something like that in a man of God, you have to ask yourself whether you have a right to even represent God, who are, for most times and places and occasions, so indifferent. I know I ask myself that question, and perhaps you have as well. Jeremiah wept and could have wept tears as a waterfall for something that was going to happen to other people, some of whom he knew and some of whom he did not know, but all of whom he loved and showed compassion for. In Acts chapter 20, we have another occasion of weeping in the case of the Apostle Paul. And here we have Paul weeping in Acts 20:31 because he cares so much for the church at Ephesus and he knows that false teachers are going to come and perverse people are going to rise up and foul up the church and indeed it happened and we could call those tears of uh, tears of anxiety tears of care tears of concern for the church he wept not because anything bad was happening but because he could anticipate that bad would happen and it grieved his heart in Mark chapter 9, we have a different illustration of mourning and tears, the tears that ran down the face of a father. That father brought a demon-possessed child to Jesus. As a pastor, on many occasions, I have confronted the tears of a father over a wayward son. Sunday night, uh, I put my arm around a father who had just found out that his son was involved in drugs. A shock, a total jolt to that father and cause for great deep sadness. Well, here is a father in Mark 9 who brings a demon-possessed son to Jesus, and the text says, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father and the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. 
And there were the earnest tears of a father for a son. And I dare say there has never lived a father who has not shed some tears for his children if that father's heart was sensitive to the things of God. In Luke chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, we find tears of worship. Have you ever found yourself so caught up in the worship of God that tears filled your eyes? Perhaps you have. Perhaps it has come uh, as the Spirit of God pounded some truth in your heart as you heard it preached. Perhaps it has come uh, in the singing of praise. I know that's happened sometimes. I get choked up as I think about the things I'm saying and offering praise to God. In Luke 7, a woman came into a Pharisee's house where Jesus was reclining, and she brought in an alabaster box of ointment. She stood at the feet of Jesus weeping, and with her hair began to wash his feet using the tears which she shed from her own eyes. Those were tears of adoration from a woman deep in sin. She, uh, Jesus said, had sinned much and she had been forgiven. What? Much. And it was out of adoration and worship to Christ that she wept. Tears of devotion. Do you remember the Lord at the grave of Lazarus? The, the shortest verse in the Bible, John 11:35. What is it? Jesus wept. Tears of what? Tears of compassion. Not just for Lazarus, because he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he saw Lazarus dead, whom he loved, he projected the death of Lazarus far beyond Lazarus to the realization that that was what was going to happen to every human being. And his compassion expressed toward Lazarus was symbolic of his compassion for a whole human race that will perish in death because of sin. Do you remember Mary Magdalene wept over the death of Jesus? And those were the tears of loss. Those are the tears of emptiness, the tears of death. And so it goes. There are some illustrations of legitimate kind of tears. There's a place for that kind of sorrow. It's a very important release for us. As I said, otherwise, those tears kept inside poison the emotions. Tears are a part of human life, a gift of God to release the things that, that must be released. Ecclesiastes 3 says, To everything there is a season. There is a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, and a time to weep. And we all experience that in this life. But secondly, there is also an improper sorrow. There is an illegitimate sorrow. And I want to speak to that just briefly, and I want you to note it in your mind because I think it's important. When a person mourns or weeps because he cannot satisfy his his illicit lust, that is an unhealthy weeping, his impure lust. And in the Old Testament, we find an illustration of this. In 2 Samuel 13, a man named Ammon mourned, it says. He mourned until he made himself sick. Why? Because he lusted for his own sister and finally defiled his sister, whose name was, do you remember? Tamar. What a horrible kind of sorrow. What a disgusting, revolting, impure sorrow to so sorrow to the point of illness because you lust for your sister. And then there's Ahab. And Ahab, it says, mourned, wept because he wanted Naboth's vineyard. Talk about infantile. He laid on his bed, 1 Kings 21, 4 turned away his face and would eat no bread. Really a mature guy. 
He cried because he couldn't have Naboth's vineyard. He was king. What did he need with Naboth's vineyard? Now, that kind of sorrow is the sorrow based on overwhelming selfishness. That is an unhealthy kind of sorrow. There, I see that sometimes in, a, in the, the death of a person and then the partner or the family members or in some cases the friends have this depressive sorrow that they can never get over. It has nothing to do with reality. It usually has nothing to do with great love or affection. It certainly has nothing to do with great trust in God. It just has everything to do with consuming selfishness. People who literally lose their ability to live. Sometimes this improper kind of sorrow is a result of guilt. They have so fouled up the relationship that when the person dies, they're so overwrought with guilt that they can't relieve their sorrow because of the way that they treated that other person in life. It's a sort of a way of self-imposed atonement for sin. And when you see someone who in an unnatural way seems to be overwhelmed with unending sorrow over the death of someone near them, it is very often the outworking of a self-effort to atone for a defiled relationship before that death came about. A good illustration of this in the Old Testament is David. David, with all of his strengths, was really a pretty sickening guy when he lost his son Absalom. I mean, in fact, the way he acted was frankly ridiculous. I can understand as a father how it would be to some extent to lose a child. Frankly, I confess to you as a father that I have lived in my emotions through the death of every person in my family. I have lived through the death of my wife many times. I have imagined how it would be if she were to die. I have lived through some of the deep emotion. I have felt the hurt of her loss, not to the degree that I would if she died, but you lived through that. I have lived through the death of all of my children. Perhaps you have lived through the death of your parents. You have imagined in your mind the sorrow and the pain of the death of your parents. On some occasions, you may have thought that might be a positive thing. On those moments of emotion when you got into conflict with your parents and wondered, wouldn't it be wonderful if they were just in heaven and they'd be happier and so would I. But we assume that that is a passing attitude. But in the case of David, he not only lived through the emotion, no doubt, of the death of his son, but lived through the realization of that. And uh, his son, frankly, was a, was a bum of of the first rank uh, in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 20 we have the story of Absalom Absalom was talk about an, an unthankful um, son Absalom revolted against his father tried to dethrone him off the, the throne of God's people and uh, usurp his throne he led a rebellion he was proud he was a terribly proud young man uh, 2 Samuel 14 I think it's around verse 25 and 26 says that he was especially proud of his looks and his hair and the Lord dealt with that, you remember, when he died. He plotted against his father, David. I can't even imagine the pain of that kind of experience. Drove him out of Jerusalem, and his father's out in the wilderness hiding behind a bush, crying out to God, writing imprecatory psalms, and asking God why he doesn't clobber the, the, the unrighteous. And his father's in great distress. But, of course, it was in his distress that he wrote so many psalms, which are such a great blessing to us, and which, of course, were inspired by the Spirit. But here's David, the king, out there hiding behind a bush because his son's trying to take his life. 
His he's trying to wipe out his father's forces and so forth. But as it turned out, David was victorious and Absalom was slain. And um, before the battle and the conflict between David and Absalom in uh, 2 Samuel 18.5, David g gave his soldiers this message, Deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. Now, that's a sort of a weak, weak father. Absalom had built, been dealt with so gently all through his life that he was spoiled rotten. And even then, he wanted him dealt with gently. When David heard that he was dead, he said this, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's weird. <laughs> Absalom was a rat. He was the worst. What are you saying? Would God I had died? What kind of thing would that be for society? They don't need Absalom. They need you. You say, well, isn't that admirable love? I guess. I don't know. Uh, I'm glad he loved Absalom, but the idea is stupid. <laughs> what was David doing? Well, I think he was atoning for his own guilt. He was a lousy father. It's hard to be a good father when you're an adulterer. He was a lousy father. And no doubt Abraham's death was, uh, Absalom's death rather, rather was um, sort of part of David's payment for his sin with Bathsheba. In fact, God told David because of his sin that he would pay fourfold. You know what God told him? As the Lord lives, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. Fourfold. He did. His baby died, the baby born of Bathsheba. His daughter Tamar was grossly violated, raped. His son Amnon was slain and Absalom was killed. But his mourning over Absalom was something that was illicit sorrow because he should have said, God, you've done the right thing and you've punished an unjust and evil man. But instead, he mourned because he was trying to atone for his own failures in the time misspent or not spent with this son. In fact, in 2 Samuel 19, it tells us the soldiers were actually ashamed of their victory because it brought such sorrow to the king. He depressed the whole army. And Joab, who was his kind of leading soldier, said, I perceive, 2 Samuel 19, 6, that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, it would have pleased you well. His whole perspective was skewed. So you can see that there is a proper mourning and there's an improper mourning based upon selfishness and a sort of a, a sort of a auto, um, sort of an auto atonement where you think you can atone for your sin by looking sorrowful and feeling sad. But what does it mean in this beatitude then when it says, blessed are those that mourn? Is it talking about a legitimate mourning or an illegitimate one? Well, it must be a legitimate one. Some people have said, well, this is sort of a, this is sort of a platitude. And what it means is you're really happy if you, if you're sad in just a general way. And somebody even wrote a little poem. It goes like this. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a while with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Well, that's nice. 
That's that's good. I like that. And somebody said, all all sunshine makes a desert. That's good, too. I like that. And there are those platitudes about sadness. And there are a lot of people who treat the Beatitudes that way. Well, it's good to be sad because in sadness we, we reach the deep springs of our emotions, you know. Then you get all that kind of stuff. But there's an awful lot more than that here. Uh, turn in your Bible for a minute, Second Corinthians chapter 7. Second Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10. Now let's find an, another kind of sorrow here. Backing into verse 9, let's start there. Now I rejoice, not that you were made what? Sorry, let's stop there. Paul says, I rejoice. I'm not rejoicing that you were sorry in and of itself. That's no big thing. But that you sorrowed to what? Unto what? Repentance. For you were made sorry in a what? Godly manner. For verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings about what? Repentance. Now that's what the sorrow is of Matthew 5. Let's go back to it. It's the sorrow of repentance. That is godly sorrow. There are good kinds of sorrow in a human way. There are bad kinds of sorrow in a human way. But this is godly sorrow. The sorrow of the world, he says in that same passage, works death. But the sorrow that is godly works repentance. So when we read in the Beatitude... Blessed are they that mourn. These people are mourning over what? What are they mourning over? Sin. This is a godly sorrow. The issue here is not mourning about your human circumstances. The issue here is mourning about your sin. And that's what flows out of the bankruptcy of the first beatitude. You look at your life and you know that in you is nothing good. And you see the utter bankruptcy and worthlessness of your own life and that you bring nothing to God. And it is in that moment that recognition of your sin results in sadness. And Jesus, remember, is setting the standard here for living in his kingdom, the standard for true happiness. And it begins with the recognition that we have nothing. We are nothing. We're a cringing, cowering beggar who has no resource or capacity to help ourselves. We are absolutely destitute spiritually. We can only beg for mercy and grace. And we are very much aware of our sin, and our sin causes us great grief. And this is exactly why in the Old Testament it says that God looks for a person who has a broken and penitent heart. The only people who come to salvation are people who come through that process. The only people who enter the kingdom of heaven, the only people who are truly comforted, verse 4, are those who mourn over their sin. As long as we live on this earth. We never really come into the kingdom of God. We never come into a relationship with Jesus Christ that is legitimate until there's an overwhelming sense of sinfulness that drives us to the Savior. 
George MacDonald years ago wrote this wonderful little book called Life Essential. And in it, he says this, referring to these first two Beatitudes, the poor, the beggars in spirit, the humble men of heart, the unambitious, the unselfish, those who never despise men and never seek their praises, the lowly who see nothing of to admire in themselves, therefore cannot seek to be admired of others, the men who give themselves away, these are the free men of the kingdom, these are the citizens of the new Jerusalem. The men who are aware of their own essential poverty, not the men who are poor in friends, poor in influence, poor in acquirement, poor in money, but those who are poor in spirit, who feel themselves poor creatures, who know nothing to be pleased with themselves for, and desire nothing to make them think well of themselves, who know that they need much to make their life worth living, to make their existence a good thing, to make them fit to live. These humble ones are poor whom the Lord calls blessed. When a man says, I am low and worthless, then the gate of the kingdom begins to open to him, for there enter the true, and this man has begun to know the truth concerning himself. Whatever such a man has attained to, he straightway forgets. It is part of him and behind him. His business is with what he has not, with the things that lie above and before him. And such poverty of spirit leads then to mourning over sin. It's like Isaiah who cries, Woe is me, for I am undone. And you know, David had this experience, didn't he? Do you remember the two Psalms that David wrote out of the experience of his sin with Bathsheba? What Psalms were they? Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And in both of those Psalms, he pours out the most profound confession of sin so poverty-stricken did he see himself to be, so bankrupt spiritually, so broken in his heart, so wrenched deeply in his spirit that he writes those classic psalms which give words to the penitent heart. And Job, we find him crying out the same kind of penitence in chapter 42 as he repents and asks only that God would bring about in his life that which he was worthy of, and that would be nothing short of judgment except for God's mercy. So the word mourning then expresses sorrow over sin. And by the way, I told you earlier that there are nine words in the Greek language for mourning, and this is the strongest one of all the nine that is used here. It is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, several times. On one occasion, it is used for Jacob's grief when he believed Joseph, his son, was dead. Genesis 37, 24, which was a profound expression of grief. It is used in Mark 16, Revelation, many other places in the New Testament. It covers the idea of a very deep mourning. It is not a superficial sorrow. It is a very deep sorrow. It is not the word that refers to outward wailing. Not outward crying, but inward pain and deep sadness. And that was the expression of David in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. So happy are the sad who come to the recognition of their own sinfulness, who see their own bankruptcy. And this kind of attitude towards sin is essential, I believe, in bringing someone to the knowledge of Christ. And I also believe that it becomes a part of your life. There's really no way to avoid this if you're a Christian, because if you really see your life for what it is as a Christian, and if you're a Christian, you will, you're going to always have that sort of sense of mourning within you. 
I mean, it's rarely a day when you don't, in some point in time, say to the Lord, you know, Lord, I really am so sorry that I keep going back to the same old sins all the time. And there's just this, this sort of constant uh, mourning. And I don't mean by that that you're morbid, that you're flopping on the ground and kicking and screaming. I, I just mean that there is this sort of residual frustration and sadness about your inability to do the thing you know that God would want you to do and be the person you know He'd want you to be. And I don't mean by this a wallowing in self-pity, but I mean a true, broken, and contrite heart that just continues to be sad over sin. Now, you show me a, a, a person who has sort of an ongoing sadness about sin, and I'll show you a person who probably has, has a, a good relationship with the Lord. Now, that's not all there is in their life. I have an ongoing sadness about my sin, but I also have an ongoing joy. That's another message. I mean, Paul had that. Paul says, rejoice always, and again I say, rejoice. That's what he said to the Philippians. You know what he said to the Romans? I have continual sorrow and heaviness of heart. See, how can you have continual joy and continual heaviness of heart? You know and I know, right? If I think about my sin, I'm sad. If I think about the blessings God's given me, I'm happy. And I just go through life like that. So do you. Any Christian does. So it's not as if this is the only emotion. We're not, we're not going around browbeating ourselves in morbidity all the time. But there is that constant sense of sin. Luther, in his 95 Thesis, which really sprung loose the whole Reformation, said that our entire life is to be a continuous repentance and contrition. And we find ourselves crying out with David in Psalm 38, For mine iniquities are gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me to bear. I've asked the Lord many times, how can you even keep me in the ministry? When, when you see how I fail repeatedly... If you're not mourning over your sin and forsaking it, then you perhaps should do a little bit of inventory on what your relationship is to the Lord. By the way, the verb here is in a present tense. Blessed are they that continually mourn. It characterizes the mourning of the godly, which is constant. Which is constant. Even Jesus sort of identified with us and mourned for our sin. In fact, the Scripture says He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that grief was not only His own grief, but... He wept often over the grief that came to him because of the plight of others. He didn't have to cry for his own sin. He had no sin, so he cried for ours, right? And um, that's what mourning means. So the beatitude living is that which starts with a spiritual bankruptcy, recognizes sin, and it's that that leads you to come to Christ, and then that continues to be your attitude even as a Christian. To be honest with you, look at it this way. When you became a Christian, did you in yourself and in your humanness and in your flesh inherit any capacity to please God? Not really. Before you were a Christian in your flesh, you had no capacity to please God. Since you've become a Christian, it is not your flesh which functions to please God. It is His Spirit dwelling in you, right? And that new nature. So... When you come to the Lord in bankruptcy of spirit and you mourn over your sin because of what you see to be true about yourself, you receive Jesus Christ, you enter the kingdom, you're comforted at that point. That isn't the end of that. 
you're still having to live with the inability of your flesh, right? You're still having to live with the inability of your humanness and the sin that's part of you. And so that, that bankruptcy of your human spirit, that bankruptcy that leads to mourning over your sin is an ongoing thing. It's an ongoing thing. Now, just in closing, notice that he says these are the people who are comforted. And that's just a way of saying they're the ones who belong to the kingdom. They're the ones who receive comfort. Now, let me close by doing what I did the last time and giving you some practical things. How can you become a mourner? I'm just going to fire these at you very rapidly in about two minutes. How can you become a mourner? How can you get to this point? I don't want to be mystical today. I want you to be able to apply this. First of all, eliminate the hindrances. You start by eliminating the hindrances. What are the hindrances to me mourning over my sin? One hindrance would be insensibility. That is hardness of heart, resisting the spirit, being past feeling, uh, having a heart of stone. The writer of Hebrews says, don't harden your heart. A stony heart can't mourn. It's void of all grace. The plow of the word can't break it up. Eliminate that insensibility. And that means eliminating the love of sin. Sin will literally ossify your sensibilities. It'll harden them. These are the things that make the heart stony. Love of sin. Don't cultivate that. That's a hindrance to mourning. Stay away from sin. Secondly, despair. Stay away from despair. Don't let things depress you. Don't allow yourself the sin of depression. Did you hear what I said? Don't allow yourself the sin of depression. Someone who is a Christian and is constantly depressed is guilty of violating a command of the Scripture, and that is in all things to be thankful. Don't allow yourself that. This undervalues God's power and minimizes the work of Jesus Christ. It ignores the power of the Spirit in your life. It ignores the commands to be obedient and joyful. Jeremiah 18, 12, they said there's no hope and we'll walk after our own devices and will everyone do the imagination of his evil heart. That's the language of despair. And despair hides mercy behind a cloud. It hides grace. It hides God's power. It hides God's spirit. The Lord will be gracious, gracious, and you have all things that pertain to life and godliness because of your faith in Christ. So don't allow yourself the sin of despair. And further, another hindrance to this morning is conceit or pride. Because pride says, I'm sad because I'm not getting what I deserve. And I'm certainly not sad because of my sin. I'm just too good for that. Don't kid yourself. There's no such thing as a little sin. One of the hindrances is the conceit that will not recognize sin. Another one is presumption. That is to say, well, um, you know, the Lord will forgive it. It's no big deal. That's a hindrance to true mourning over sin. And another one's procrastination. Just put it off, put it off, put it off. Do you have a regular time in your life when you confess your sin to the Lord? Is that a part of your life, daily life? Or do you procrastinate that because you don't want to deal with that? If you don't, you'll forfeit blessing and you'll lose the joy that comes to that fully forgiven heart. 
So, eliminate the hindrances. Secondly, study the penitence of Scripture. By that I mean the people who demonstrate a penitent heart. Study David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Peter, Paul. Listen to David in Psalm 51 as he says, My sin is ever before me. Study those men and why they felt the way they did. And then the last thing I would mention to you is to pray for a contrite heart. Because I believe if God wants you to have that and you ask him, he'll give it to you, right? That's his will. Let's pray together. Father, we would do an inventory of our hearts today and ask the question, am I sensitive to my sin? Or do I take pleasure in it? Do I love it or do I hate it? And then we would take the inventory again and ask if we're comforted. Do I enjoy that sense of freedom that comes to one who's forgiven? Do I enjoy that sense of right relationship with you that allows me to come into your presence without fear of rejection and be totally transparent and share my deepest thought? Lord, may it be that we are those sensitive to our sin and pouring that out to you, find that wonderful comfort of forgiveness. And thereby, because we have been comforted even in our sin, we are filled with praise of which you are so worthy. Work your work in every life, and I thank you for every person here, every blessed gift from you. Do your work in every heart. We love you, we praise you with thanksgiving, for Christ's sake. Amen. Have a great day.